Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, happy new Hi. year. <laughs> happy new year, Emily. Oh, How dear. are you doing? Terrible, how about you? Awful. <laughs> Uh, happy new year to our listeners though (laughs) i know and hopefully some of our listeners have had a good new year and a good christmas yeah tell me about yours so um my christmas was okay it was it was fine actually it was probably the last good day that i had (laughs) managed to cook a turkey and the duck and feed the family and kids were happy with their gifts and but then uh, the following day, my husband tested positive for COVID. I tested every day and it was all negative lateral flow. But I was having really bad palpitations and feeling all the long COVID symptoms. Yeah, you had a really bad heart, didn't you? I did. I had a really bad heart for that week. And I was really surprised that I hadn't popped positive. And then by the end of the week, I was still having all the omicron symptoms so i was like we'll do a pcr pcr was pcr was positive and um lateral flows are still negative (laughs) very odd it's very odd and it doesn't really make sense does it no but i'll tell you what i did do um i was taking all my heart meds as soon as my husband was positive i thought okay well there's no way i'm not going to get it I took the colchicine, I took the antihistamine therapy, I took the beta blockers, I took anything and everything that I've been prescribed in the year. Because it's like a I little Christmas thought, cocktail. Yeah, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to try and dampen down any inflammatory symptoms that I get from COVID. Yeah. And so far, I don't know. I mean, God knows, you know, we always feel okay during when we have COVID and then afterwards it really hits us. So. Yeah, I mean, that's what's worrying me about about you. It, it feels, again, like it's the actual COVID doesn't seem very severe. But as we all know, it's not to do with the severity of the infection that, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm just concerned about what happens to your long COVID symptoms Yeah. now. I mean, hopefully... I don't know. We'll see. But this is really odd because I've lost my voice again. Do you remember a few weeks ago we both lost our voices? Yeah. It's, it feels exactly the same. Yeah, and that's what's really weird. That time where we were both got ill, it, it was all of the Omicron um, symptoms, symptoms, wasn't it? And yeah, yet like... we're both testing negative on lateral flows. But at the time I didn't PCR. So it is yeah. it is quite strange. Um, anyway, and yeah, so triple triple vaxxed and still sick. Still so. sick. Um, and we don't know, of course, it, I mean, we don't know what strain you have, but we don't know it, the long COVID implications of Omicron yet because what we're kind of six weeks out of it being recognised, aren't we? So I guess soon yeah, we might I, start seeing data coming out of South Africa, but I don't think they have very good data in South Africa on long COVID from what uh, Professor Pretorius was saying. So... I don't know if, when we'll know about the implications of this on long COVID. We know that any virus affects our long COVID symptoms and COVID seems to have done the same. What we don't know is will Omicron create a whole new swathe of long COVID patients? Yeah. 
And I suspect it probably will. Yeah, I suspect it will. If what a lot of people are telling us is it's essentially post-viral, if you've got that volume of people. And there are so many people with it. Uh, it could be huge. Yeah. How about you, my love? You've had a really bad few weeks. I've had a really bad few weeks. And looking back, I feel really lucky about how my 22 months of long COVID have been in that I've had these crashes which are very painful and I can't get out of bed but in between I have good days and I'm kind of able to function which I know is a lot better than a lot of people have but these past kind of three weeks it's I've not I've not had good days like I some days I can hardly get up some days I can't take a walk you know it's it's got really bad um have to sit down halfway through getting dressed and this is stuff that I didn't have before is that breathlessness fatigue what having to sit down you're having to sit down yeah yeah it's kind of dizziness I I can't look up without um without getting really dizzy I passed out I I it feels like it's an oxygen problem in my body Betty Rahman needs to hurry up with her mitochondria stuff, doesn't she? <laughs> Someone needs to hurry up with something. I might be profoundly anemic again. I, I Yeah, I was going to say, because you had that infusion, but that's been a good six months now, right? Yeah, and but it feels like it might be that my red blood cells are not carrying enough oxygen just because of so many weird things happening. My tinnitus is, is so bad. And the suggestion that that is anxiety-driven is, is completely actually... I I can feel that it's not because I feel the pressure change in one ear and not the other. And I get tinnitus in one ear and not the well, other. That's really interesting because Vaz was saying it has to be both in both ears, didn't he? He's like, it's really unusual to have something in one ear. But but I can literally, I can feel, I'll, I'll just be standing and I can feel some kind of pressure change. Now, if you actually read about anemia, anemia causes ringing in the ears and it's to do with the way that the blood is passing past the ear canal or something. And it's so it is actually to do with your blood pressure. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm just speculating because I literally (laughs) can't really get medical help because obviously everyone is overwhelmed. I have managed to get a a telephone GP appointment. Well done you. that's only because I wrote and I said I've had this for 22 months and I still don't have a long COVID clinic referral and no one is helping me like there's no continuity of care I mean this is a tip I tell all our listeners if you're having an issue with your general practice and it could be just because they're completely overwhelmed but the moment you put something in writing you do seem to get a response because then there's a paper trail yeah I hate to say it the moment I've put anything in writing I've had response but it is, it's the only way that I they started taking me seriously for my long COVID. I, well, listen, 2022. Well, I had really high hopes for 2022 that we were going to get better and it started off like an absolute... Listen, you don't... Listen, let's, let's start with a bit of positivity. Maybe this is the worst part of 2022. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. Right, and it's only going to get better. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do feel like the government's kind of just given up you don't need to be tested. No, you don't need to isolate. Just no. let it flow through. Let it flow through the country, which is my opinion. Which is fine if you just get a cold and then you recover. Yeah. But it's not fine if you have the after effects. Yeah. And so what with Omicron is the real disaster in the waiting is long COVID. Because, okay, death, death rates are low. 
God help the country, honestly. Yeah. And we're such an outlier. The rest of Europe, the kids are all wearing masks. They're all getting jabbed. They're still having to, you know, mitigate. And we're just like, oh, opened all the doors. I kept all the windows shut. <laughs> so true. Right. So hopefully, you know, we all keep bringing you as much information and as many experts as we can. This is a problem that's not going away. We've got some great interviews coming up. We have an interview with Bruce Patterson from the US and uh, we have an interview with an endocrinologist coming in the, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and uh, keep writing in with uh, any ideas you have. Of, we will also be looking at diet and um, mental health as well. Yeah. In this episode, we are revisiting Robin McNellis, um, respiratory physio, someone that we um, spoke to on a previous episode we went back to robin to give us a little how-to guide on breathing and this is a, like a little supplement well i was going to say robin's actually a really hearty uh way to start the new year because he seems to have recovered he's back running yeah he, he also almost gives a little how-to guide on managing your your heart rate and and how he has done that he gives us some hope doesn't he he does he's a little bright spark i mean he's you know, from a marathon runner who couldn't run for a year, investigated all these lactate thresholds and keeping your heart rate below a certain number, he's actually running again. Yeah. So really something to aim for for all of us. Let's be a little bit more Robin. Less Boris, more Robin. <laughs> so what we wanted to do with you today is um, people just really do want practical advice um and i know that we posted um links from you to various breathing breathing exercises but we were wondering whether you would actually be able to do a breathing exercise with us that could be used by i know that everyone has different symptoms so it's mm -hmm. got to be something that's not super specific or something that's going to be detrimental to people but a, a, a breathing exercise that we could all do with long COVID, to improve our oxygen and our carbon dioxide, as we discussed before, because it's not just about the oxygen, is it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and something that is a couple of minutes long that people would be able to try. Yeah. Why don't you just treat us like a client? Okay. Someone who comes to see you. Yeah. And we'll just do what you say. Yeah. Okay. It's rare that Noreen and I say that, but we'll just sit here and do what you tell us. <laughs> so for many patients who have had COVID or any other nasty infection or any trauma, then they will often lose their normal breathing pattern. And it's really important for all of us to make sure that we've got a good, relaxed breathing pattern when we're at rest. And we don't think about our breathing. Our breathing is something that's subconscious, but we have conscious control over. So what I want to do today is talk a little bit through of what is normal breathing, and then just lead you through just a couple of minutes of how your breathing should be at rest. So the first thing is that we should be breathing through our nose rather than our mouth when we're breathing at rest. And we should be breathing nose to diaphragm rather than upper chest 
One of the things that we often see with long COVID patients is that because they've had a lot of fatigue and a lot of breathlessness, they've got into the bad habit of using their upper chest rather than using their diaphragm as the main muscles of breathing. And this helps to exhaust them and increases their symptoms. So we want to really focus on the nose to diaphragm breathing. And breathing should be nice and gentle. We're not doing deep breathing at this stage. Nice, gentle nose to diaphragm breathing. Coming gently in and out. Nice, gentle breaths in and out through your nose. So one of the difficult things that a lot of people say to me is, how do they know they're breathing to their diaphragm? Because if you're breathing poorly, you will feel a lot of the symptoms from your upper chest and around your neck, and you will feel breathlessness. You'll get the negative sensations of bad breathing. One of the challenging things with treating patients is that when you breathe well, you don't get positive feedback. The positive is the absence of the negative. One way that people find useful is to put one hand on their upper chest and the other hand at the bottom of the ribs and the top of their belly. So as you're breathing in and out gently through your nose, your tummy should be swelling out as your diaphragm pushes down and then gently falling back again. Your upper chest should not be moving, but it shouldn't be tense. It should be nice and relaxed. Just take a few nice gentle breaths. Coming gently in through your nose, down towards your diaphragm, and then gently out again. Some people, if they've been breathing with their upper chest for a long period of time, find it really difficult to relax the muscles in their upper chest and around their neck that are helping them breathe. It's become habitual for them, and that's their main muscles of breathing. One of the ways you can help to get your diaphragm working is to put your hands behind your head. This means that it's more difficult for your upper chest muscles to work to help you to breathe, and your body defaults to the easier course, which is hopefully the diaphragm. If it's a very ingrained pattern, if it's been happening for a long period of time, then it may take a lot of practice to get working towards the diaphragm rather than the upper chest. And indeed, lying down is probably a better position for most people to practice this with, because if you're sitting up, you naturally have a lot of tension around your neck. So if people are struggling to do these breathing exercises to the diaphragm when they are sitting in an upright position, then lie down. Get your head and neck well supported. Get your knees bent up so your feet are flat on the floor and hands behind your head. We talked about having one hand on your upper chest and one hand on your tummy to give you feedback. You obviously can't do that if you've got your hands behind your head. What I often say to people is to put an iPhone or a book between the bottom of your sternum and your belly button. 
and just that downward pressure just gives you a bit of feedback as your belly's gently rising and falling. It should just be gently in and out. Ideally, we're looking for about eight to 12 breaths per minute. And remember, it's not deep breaths and it's not as slow as you can go. It's optimizing your breathing. So optimal breathing at rest, nose breathing to the diaphragm, eight to 12 breaths per minute. Nice and relaxed. It shouldn't be forced. It shouldn't be noisy. And sometimes you can use some mental imagery. Maybe imagine that you're lying on a beach with the waves gently coming in as you breathe in and gently out as you breathe out. And you can use these gentle breathing exercises for lots of forms of relaxation. But in the initial phases, you've got to be using your conscious mind to retrain the subconscious elements of your breathing. And sometimes when you're doing this, if you've been over breathing, then you will get what we call air hunger. This is just your body recognizing the change in carbon dioxide levels. Don't be scared by this. It's just your body noticing something different happening. You may have to fight this a little bit, but not too much. If you try to fight air hunger too much, it becomes too unpleasant and becomes a trigger factor. You should try doing these breathing exercises at least twice a day in a nice, calm, quiet environment for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then once you get really good at it and you've got good breathing awareness, you can be doing additional little snapshots through the day. If you're going into a meeting that you know is going to be stressful, take two minutes to really focus on your breathing. And there's a lot of crossover between these breathing exercises and mindfulness and meditation, which we know can be a really powerful tool when people practice these when they've got long COVID or in everyday life. Fantastic. Brilliant. Noreen thinks uh, th thinks that uh, I'm hilarious, but I'm trying to meditate and breathe my way out of this illness. And cold showers. And cold showers. But interestingly, everything that you talk about there, it's not just about your oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's yeah. about calming your nervous system yeah. and resetting your adrenaline levels and things as well. Indeed. How, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, making progress. Are you? Um, and yeah, um, back to doing a bit of jogging. Are you? So, that, so that's good. As long as it's on the treadmill, uh, a controlled speed with controlled heart rate with the fan on me, then I'm fine. If I try to go outside and there's a little gust of wind or a little incline, then heart rate goes to pot. And uh, this is about control. having everything controlled. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I've I've been running for um, uh, longer periods of time uh, on the treadmill, and uh, as long as I keep that heart rate good then I'm absolutely fine. Have okay. you had crashes or, or have you been fairly constant since we No, I've been fairly constant. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been quite good, quite reassuring. So you think it is basically getting that heart rate under 
control that has that has done that? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think keeping it below my lactate threshold um, seems to have been the, the key point to try to allow recovery uh, and regeneration. And uh, that's what the theories have been, and that's what I'm certainly seeing. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward. I've got another lactate threshold test next week, so we will see what, what that shows. Yeah. Hopefully. I, I think my lactate threshold will will be about as high as it's going to go. Um, I think it's the other elements of how my body deals with the, the lactic acid when I start producing a little bit more, which wasn't good before. I was just getting flooded with it um, and getting lots of symptoms. But I'm going at a lot quicker paces now and not getting the symptoms. So that's really reassuring. Is there um, a way that you can kind of monitor that um, lactate threshold without undergoing that kind of testing? So there, there was theoretical levels from the research done in chronic fatigue uh, in America that had seen it about 55% of your max heart rate was where the, the a lot of people's thresholds were. And indeed, that's where mine started off at. Um, and then mine, probably because I'm quite in tune with my body through my running and through my work, uh, I was actually able to predict fairly uh, precisely where I was at. Um, and But that needs someone who actually knows what their maximum heart rate is when they're healthy, does it? I think that there's people that I've, I've tried doing it a bit with trial and error. They've started off with the the um, kind of 55%. Yeah. Um, and then if they've been doing fine at that with no crashes, just nudging it up just a little bit. So if, say, their max heart rate they should be working at is 100 and they're absolutely fine with that, um, yeah. then nudging it up to 105. But how do we establish what our maximum heart rate is? Uh, 220 minus your age is your... Oh. It's a theoretical way to do it. Uh, and for all that it is not foolproof, it uh, gives us a starting point. And there's lots of people over the years have tried to work out uh, ways of um, of doing it more accurately. And yeah. they're much of a muchness. Really? And so okay. 220 minus your ages is the easiest approximation of it. I might look at that then, working to 55%. I've found that since I've I've really completely stopped doing all of the cardio, stopped doing any kind of weights or anything, and um, maybe it's causing fewer crashes. Yeah, I mean, I found that um, when I started heart rate monitoring about a year ago, that it was inadvertent increases in heart rate that were actually causing the problem. So things like I noticed that my peak heart rate was at five to six every day, and it's because that's when I was leaving work. And that was when I was getting um, changed out of uniform at the end of the day, particularly tying my shoelaces. And uh, showering as well was causing my heart rate to, to spike. There's lots of things that you're inadvertently got the heart rate going up. Yeah. And um, and then, because uh, I could go out and go for walks and keep my heart rate under control. Mm-hmm. But then if I was showering or getting dressed, then my heart rate would be through the roof. So it wasn't actually um the activity I was doing it was the things around it and I saw that uh, quite regularly with patients from way back at the beginning that when they started heart rate monitoring the cardiologist say it's an inappropriate 
inappropriate tachycardia when your body's just doing something that shouldn't raise your heart rate, but it does. But there's there's things like showering, particularly hands above head, that we know with cardiorespiratory patients, it will cause um, a, a greater increase, particularly if people have got apical breathing. And then is it the same as when you bend down to tie your shoelaces? Is that the same thing? When you're bending down, particularly as I put on weight at that point, um, you're, as you're um, bending down, then your abdominal contents are pushing up against your diaphragm, pushing up, increasing your intrathoracic pressure. And so we've known that these things cause blood pressure spikes or heart rate spikes uh, in cardiorespiratory patients for years. So that's not anything that's new to COVID. There's other things like showering and uh, and getting changed, where you're using a lot of the muscles and you're changing posture, using your, your arms a lot, particularly if you're using them above mid chest height to wash your hair or whatever that we've, we've known for years that with cardiorespiratory patients for a multitude of reasons you will get uh, a spike in heart rate yeah not new to you but new to a lot of us if having your hands above your heart triggers your heart rate how would you do that with your hands when you breathe so that's usually better when you're lying down but um it's it's a very individual thing. And a lot of it is a little bit trial and error. So it's about taking the philosophy. I've got some patients that for all it should be, teach them how to do it lying down and then sitting and then standing. Depending on how how everything is organized around their abdomen, shall we say, then some people find it easier to do lying down and then standing, but they actually really struggle in a sitting position. Some people find it really helps putting their hands above their head. Some people feel that it doesn't help them at all. One of the reasons we're putting the hands behind the head is to try to reduce the amount of activity in the upper chest and neck and shoulder muscles because those muscles give us loads of feedback. So if we're walking along and turning our heads, these muscles need to give us feedback so we don't fall over. But they also give us feedback when they're working for breathing. And that can actually cause somebody to have an anxiety reaction because their vagus nerve bombards their brain with information. And so the brain gets overloaded from neural input and then you get the adrenaline reaction because the kidneys release more adrenaline um, and then you get into that horrible vicious cycle that we've talked about before. Brilliant. Fabulous. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.